You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Liberty Family Church. For more information about our church, head to the website, libertyfamilychurch.net.au. We had, as I said, we had a, we had a bit of a, a detour last Sunday, didn't we? we? We had a break from our God's story exploration, our journey together. And after a week off, we're back. We're back in God's story. So just a very quick recap. Last time in God's story, who remembers what we looked at? (laughs) A couple of kings, yeah, the first two kings, King Saul and King David. And we were reminded that through the ups and downs of their life, or at least this is the angle that I took in reflecting on it, we were kind of reminded what happens when people stop growing, when people remain unaware of their own deep sinful tendencies and character flaws and the way in which that if we aren't aware of that ourselves, these things can so easily derail and even destroy our very lives. Yeah? That's kind of what we focused on last time. And as we continue on in God's story, we we see... Funnily enough, we see what we've seen so far. Things don't get any better. In fact, things get far, far worse. So I'm going to give us a very quick summary on a very long period of time here, okay? So, so stick with me, all right? Stick with me. So in 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Kings, we read about all these different kings. We read about story after story of all the kings that come after Saul and David, kings who are tasked by God, the same as what Saul and David were, to establish his kingdom over the nations and to lead Israel in such a way with integrity and wholeness and purity that they will be able to inherit the promises made all the way back in Genesis 12 to Abraham. Yeah? But there's a problem. And you probably know what the problem is. These kings are no better than the kings that went before. In fact, many of them are considerably worse. And the only good job that they do is actually running the nation of Israel into the ground. Like, you read 1 and 2 Kings for yourself. You will see that that is probably a good summary of it. 1 and 2 Kings highlight Israel's continual spiral. And they've been on this spiral already, but they just keep going. You think it can't go any lower? Read 1 and 2 Kings. You'll see that it it goes lower and lower into sin and depravity. And as they go deeper in that way, they move further and further away from Yahweh. It's It's a super dark period for the nation of Israel. And this period gets so, so horrible. It gets so dark that God's people who are united, remember, we went from judges, the 12 tribes, and then they were united under the one, the monarchy, the king, you know. Israel, it gets so dark that they, being united under one king, it was Rehoboam at the time, who was Solomon's son, they actually break away from one another. Disunity rises up within the nation of Israel, and they divide themselves into two kingdoms. So a lot of detail here. I'll skim over it. Judah and the majority of the tribe of Benjamin, they accept Rehoboam as their king and form 
what's called the southern kingdom of Israel, or Judah for short. And the other 10 tribes and the remainder of the tribes of Benjamin, who you are usually, you might have heard people refer to the 10 tribes, the 10 tribes. Well, they chose Jeroboam, not to be confused with Rehoboam, they chose Jeroboam as their king, and they form the northern kingdom of Israel, which is known as Israel for short. Yeah? With me? And the author of 1 and 2 Kings actually highlights kings from each of these kingdoms. So as you read through 1 and 2 Kings, which, like a lot of the 1 and 2s, are not in the original, they're not actually two books. They're actually one continuous read. They're just separated into two books for our convenience, really. So what it does is in, in 1 and 2 Kings, the author goes from a king in one kingdom to a king in another and all over the place. And so you've really got to kind of track it, um, you know, write it down or, or have a good follow-through to see which king they're talking about from which kingdom. It can get a bit confusing. But basically what the author does is he, through this time, evaluates the kings on three particular criteria. And this is from the Bible Project. Uh, and they say... This is the first one. Did they worship the God of Israel alone? And the second, did they rid Israel of idolatry? And third, did they remain faithful to the covenant? So that's what essentially the author of 1 and 2 Kings is doing all the way through, taking a look at their lives and, and seeking to answer those questions and then evaluating them on the basis of those answers. So how do you reckon the kings rated Unsurprisingly, not very well. This is incredible, but the author of Kings rates every single king in the northern kingdom of Israel, Israel, as bad. Like every single king. And in the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, the author rates only eight of 20 kings as being good. So we, we can do maths, can't we, most of the time? That is, eight of 40 kings over the nation of Israel as a whole, only eight were good, God deemed to be good. And you can imagine, you can imagine the, the effects that this has as, as corrupt leaders, as leaders who aren't honouring God, are leading others, you can see where this is going and things are not looking good. And so God, who, as we've seen over and over again, is always patient, long-suffering, he's faithful, he's loving, he is just waiting for his people to repent and return to him. And in order to, to reach out to them as they're increasingly further and further away from him, he sends prophets to speak to each of the kingdoms. So what's a prophet? Well, a prophet is simply a person who speaks on God's behalf. Let's not overcomplicate it. That's the definition of a prophet, a person who speaks on God's behalf. And scripture contains story after story, and we're not going to go into all the prophets in our God story journey. Otherwise, we'd be on like a six-year journey. We want to try and get it through our journey in the year. But you only need to read through all of the prophets to see that God continually uses people to speak 
to his people on his behalf. And these are prophets. And, you know, often it's to rebuke his rebellious and sinful people and tell them, hey guys, you keep going down that path, it ain't going to go well for you. Repent, turn back to me. Come back to me. And as we saw last week, who did God use to rebuke David in his sin? He used a prophet by the name of Nathan. And Nathan called it out. He, he got him. He said it straight. And David repented. And God used a prophet by the name of Elijah, probably the most famous prophet, most celebrated, to come against the priests of Baal at Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. You can read about that. And to show the nations yet again that he is the Almighty God, that he is the one true powerful God. He is greater than any idol or false God that the others might worship. And then God uses Elijah's successor, Elisha. What is with the names? Like seriously, it doesn't make it easy, does it? Rehoboam, Jeroboam, Elijah, Elisha. He used Elijah's successor, Elisha, to do many mighty things. He helped Elijah continued on that work. He wiped out Baal worship. He brought a widow's son back to life miraculously. He cured Naaman's leprosy. The, the kids, I think, are doing that this week or next. Naaman. And as... Not curing leprosy, but the, the story of curing leprosy. I don't, do we have any leprosy? We could pray for that if we do, but yeah. Um, nice. As, uh, as one Bible commentator says, he said, Elisha's power and authority through God was so great that when a dead man was thrown into Elisha's grave, the man sprang back to life. Like, that's miraculous. You can, you can read about that in 2 Kings 13. And you're probably getting the picture. You probably want to read 1 and 2 Kings. I would, if I were you. And, and those are only a few. Like, all of Scripture, a lot of the books in the Old Testament focus in on what are known as the major and minor prophets. Now, when you hear that, sometimes you think major means better and minor doesn't mean they're as important. It doesn't mean that. Simply, major are the longer prophet books and the minor are the shorter prophet books. That's all it means. It's as simple as that. So the longer books like Isaiah, Jeremiah... Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, as opposed to the minor prophets like Hosea, Joel, Amos, Nahum, Obadiah, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, the list could go on. You know? So th- don't think for a moment like these five are the elevated ones and these are the lesser ones. No, it's simply commenting on the length. Now, Despite God sending many prophets to speak to his people on his behalf and to perform many, many, many miracles in his name, which they did. And you read 1 and 2 Kings, you'll see that. What do God's people do? They continue to do what we so often do as human beings. They continued in their rebellion and continued to refuse to listen to Yahweh. And this is tragic. And this is how, this is how far Israel have fallen at this point in time. As a result of their rebellion, of their hardening of their hearts, the northern kingdom of Israel, so Israel as it's known, the one that was without even one good king out of 20 kings who ruled them over this time period, eventually ceased to exist. 
in about the year 721, the northern kingdom of Israel is actually taken into exile by one of the global powers at the time, by Assyria. And if anyone's read any history books, you'd know that you don't want to be taken into exile by Assyria. They were ruthless. They, um, they win awards for the most horrific, horrific, pretty well everything. They're, it's not a nice uh, people to be taken into exile with. And in that year, and we see in Scripture, they were effectively never heard of again. They were taken into exile, and that was it. Gone. See your ten tribes, gone. To this day, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom are actually referred to as the ten lost tribes. The ten lost tribes of Israel. And it's a really, really, really tragic tale. But as we've seen time and time again, despite all this tragedy, despite all this rebellion, despite people continuing to go their own way and do so many offensive things in the sight of their God, God refused to be finished with his people. Despite their sin, yes, the other kingdom, southern kingdom, continued to go their own way too, even after seeing the other ten go into exile. I mean, wouldn't that have kind of set a few alarm bells off? If we keep going down this path, maybe it's not going to go so well for us. Well, they continue in their sin, and yet God continues to plead with the southern kingdom, Judah, to repent and follow him again over a period of many, many, many years. It's a, if you look at a timeline of 1 and 2 Kings and the events and 1 and 2 Chronicles and all the associated books around this time, it, we're talking hundreds of years. And um, yeah, so have a look. Have a look. Dig deeper yourself this week. So anyway, here's the point, and that's a long way of getting to where we are today. But here's the point. There came a point in time when Assyria, who had already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, they returned to finish the job. The job was only half done. Or, what is it? Four-fifths done. Four-fifths? Something like that. Five-sixths? Something like that. Anyway, to take Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, into exile too. And right here, right here in God's story is where we meet a character by the name of King Hezekiah. So who was King Hezekiah? Well, this is good news. He was one of the good ones. He was one of the eight who was known to be good. He was one of the few kings of Israel who actually sought to honour and worship God. He was a man who actually led the nation of Israel in his time period in keeping God's commands. 2 Chronicles 31.20 sums up Hezekiah like this. says, Hezekiah did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. It's pretty good. And 2 Kings 18.5 paints this remarkable picture of Hezekiah's character. It says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Now that, especially in a time like that, is a pretty major rap, isn't it? Like, yeah, that is a big, big rap. Hezekiah was a man who trusted in the Lord, and there were none like him 
either after him or before him. No king at all. So why does King Hezekiah get this glowing endorsement? Like, he must have done something to earn it. Well, there's so many things, but you could say that King Hezekiah was on a cleaning mission. And I don't mean like he had the sanitizer out, spraying surfaces and stuff like that. He was on a cleaning mission to make Israel pure once again. You know, he cleaned out, he reopened the temple that his own father had been had nailed shut. Not a good move. He destroyed all the pagan influences, the temples, idols, altars. They were just gone at his command. Who remembers the bronze serpent that, that Moses had? Yeah? Well, the people of the time had actually made that into an idol. And so what does he do? He has it destroyed. He's like, hey, guys. We're to have no gods other than Yahweh. What are you doing? Let's destroy this. It's a stumbling block to us. You can read about that in 2 Kings 18. Hezekiah did other things too. He reinstated the Levitical priesthood. So the, the, the sacrifices, offerings for sins, thanksgiving, all that sort of stuff. And he even reintroduced Passover. This is how far Israel had gone. Like he's reintroducing all the things that God originally brought about for the good of the nation. And they've just put them all aside to go their own way. So he made Passover a national holiday once again. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles chapter 30. So I'm sure even just by that brief rundown, you can see why Hezekiah gets the glowing gold star endorsement that he does. He's a good and godly man who leads Israel well even though Israel often continued to refuse to listen to him, just like they did all the other kings. And 2 Kings 18, 6, 7 says, Because he was faithful, God blessed him abundantly for his obedience. Verse 6 says, For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Now, while all of this that was going on was great news for Israel, all of this wasn't good news for the Assyrians, of course. Because they, at the time, they were living in and amongst the people of Judah. They were, they were well and truly mingled, doing the very thing that God had told them wouldn't go well by mingling with other nations and all that sort of thing. And the Assyrians, they didn't want to see Judah prosper. They wanted to continue to exploit God's people. They wanted to take their land. They wanted to take their belongings. And they ultimately wanted to destroy the rest of this nation called Israel. And in 701 BC... Assyria returned to do just that. 2 Kings 18.13 describes what occurred. It says, In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So here we see Judah in trouble, big trouble. All their cities were under siege and and I, I love this. Hezekiah, this, is, this was actually recorded in the ancient annals of um, Zennacherib. So historical documents attributed to Zennacherib. This is how 
Zanacharib, the king coming against Hezekiah at the time, describes what he was like. He says that Hezekiah was made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence like a bird in a cage. Isn't that a great description? Israel, we're in big trouble. What do we do when we're backed into a corner? When we face impossible situations as people of faith? Do we give up and wave the, the white flag of surrender? Oh man, it's all too hard. How do we, how do we respond? Now, if you're unfamiliar with Hezekiah's story, you're probably thinking, I know exactly how this guy is going to respond to this. He's a man of faith. He's a man of integrity. He trusts the Lord. The first thing he's going to do is cry out to the Lord and invite him in, and it's all going to go well for Hezekiah and Israel. Well, that was what he eventually did, but that wasn't his initial response. Hezekiah's initial response was not one of faith, but of compromise. In 2 Kings 18, 14 to 16, we don't have it on the screen, but let me just say it, I guess. Hezekiah effectively bargains with Zanacharib. He, he actually makes it out like somehow he's at fault to kind of appease this this Assyrian king coming to destroy Israel. And then what he does is the, the king Zennacherib asks for all this gold and silver and whatever. And so what does Hezekiah do? He goes and gets it. But he doesn't just get it from the treasury. He gets it from all the created things, all the, all the, the temple and all these things. Like, seriously, what are you doing? He, does, he just gets this stuff from anywhere and caves under pressure and just hands it all over, passing it on to his enemy. You can read about that in 2 Kings 18. It's safe to say this was not King Hezekiah's finest moment, that's for sure. But if we're honest with ourselves, he's not actually alone in this kind of behaviour when feeling threatened, is he? I mean, what he did is, is actually a common human response for people, maybe even for us when we're faced with impossible situations. So often, we too try to, to you know, um, seek to solve things through our own means, through our own resources, through our own intellect, often compromising and trying in a way to bargain ourselves out of trouble to bring about our own deliverance. Now, here is yet another reason why Hezekiah was truly a good Man, And the good news is that Hezekiah quickly realises what a fool he's been. He quickly realises just how foolish he's been. And, it, you know, in Scripture it kind of suggests that it was at the point where the Assyrians were actually publicly ridiculing Yahweh. They were calling out and saying to all the people of Israel, your God is no better than any of these other worthless gods for all the people that we have destroyed all throughout the earth. That was the point at which probably Holy Spirit brought conviction to his heart and he realized what a serious error he'd made. And so what he does is he actually humbles himself. He tears his clothes and... Uh, for those of us who mightn't be aware of what that's symbolizing, that's, that's, a, that's a 
a picture of distress, of, of a broken heart before God and saying, God, I, I have wronged you here. I have done wrong. I, I need you. I'm so sorry. He does that. He, he tears his clothes and he reaches out to a prophet by the name of Isaiah for help. Uh, 2 Kings 19, 1 to 2. It says, As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, the public disrespect of Yahweh, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. Now here is a really good choice. Here is a really good choice. Here's something to truly admire about this man, Hezekiah. Backed into a corner, seeing his God being publicly ridiculed in front of all of the people who he is king over, he recognises his error. He's man enough, in a sense, to change course, to face the impossible situation, not by compromise like he did, but with a new strategy, a strategy of faith. He humbles himself, he invites a prophet to, to minister and speak to the people of Judah, and he also seeks out the face of God himself. He gets on his own knees and prays. And he prays one of the most beautiful prayers. Let me read that for us now. 2 Kings 19, verse 14. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the heavens of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Wow, that is what you'd call a genuine prayer of faith right there, isn't it? Friends, is this what we do when we're, when we find ourselves backed into a corner, when we face impossible situations as people of faith? Are we quick, maybe if we've tried in our own strength, are we quick to learn from our errors and instead humble ourselves, seek the input of and encouragement from other people and fall on our face before God ourselves and pray and invite him to move and do the impossible. Now here's a reality we see over and over again in God's story. And I know, and I'm sure you know from walking with God today as his followers, this is something that you know to be true as well. When we actually stop trying to make a way and bring about our own deliverance, our mighty God often comes in and through and ministers in power and does something out of the ordinary, does something impossible. 
He brings deliverance. Have you experienced that before? Do you believe that God is a God who can actually do that? Well, we read on and we discover that that's exactly what happens for Hezekiah and the people of Judah. First, this is how wonderful God is. First, through the prophet Isaiah, God actually reassures Hezekiah that the king of Assyria will never even set foot within the walls of Jerusalem, not even for a fleeting moment. God declares that instead, the invaders, the Assyrians, are actually going to be sent on their way. They're going to be sent packing, and Jerusalem will be spared. 2 Kings 19.32 Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came... By the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Wow. God promises to defend the city of Jerusalem for his sake, for his glory, for his honor, for his renown among the nations as the mighty, powerful God of Israel to show, to prove that he is the Lord Almighty, the one true God. And he also promises to do this defense work for the sake of his servant David, to ensure that God's people will go on, that they will be saved, that one day they'll be able to inherit the promises made to Abraham all those years ago. And what follows is undoubtedly one of the most terrifying and confronting accounts of God's power and might in all of Scripture. It's, man, you read it, it's, it's absolutely remarkable. So we're going to do that right now. Let's, let's turn there to 2 Kings 19, 35 to 36. This is how God defends his people. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Zanacharib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. Now, this, can, this account is so brief and I guess in a sense understated that we can too easily miss what actually occurred here. I mean, Judah's in trouble. We know that. Judah, Judah are surrounded on all sides and we can work out from Scripture that it's at least 185,000 people, can't we? That's a good Good figure there? Yep. It's at least 185,000 people. And Hezekiah, he turns back to God. He places his faith in God and he invites God to move and bring about the impossible and actually deliver them from the might of Assyria. And God does what only God can do. God sends an 
angel of the Lord. That's one angel. God sends one angel and strikes down 185,000 people. I mean, come on. You think God's powerful? There is no one like God. He is the Almighty One. Like, just let that number sink in for a moment. 185,000 people. That's two MCGs full of a crowd at a prelim final in August. Like, that's an awful lot of people. 185,000. That's more people killed in one night, in one divine act, than there are people who reside in the entire Yarra Ranges. Like, seriously, let that sink in. Yahweh is no weak God like the gods of all these other nations that Assyria have defeated. Yahweh is the one true mighty God. And he showed it not by using any of his people, but simply by taking responsibility on himself. That is a truly remarkable event in history from a truly remarkable God. Now, let's, all, let's just bring all this back home to us today, to our hearts. You know, we know, or maybe if you're with us here today or, or you're listening online, you can know this. This can be your reality, your lived reality too. If you're not yet following Jesus, you can know this. We can know and we can actually reach out to this very same God today. Yeah? Who believes that? God is, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. Jesus is God, same thing. This, this same God who just in a moment by his might and power showcased his, his, who he is to the world in that great divine act of saving and judgment on a sinful nation. Let's be real here. Like Assyria were doing horrible things and this was God bringing about judgment too. So that yeah, let's not think for a moment that God somehow is like favoring Israel and whatever. They got what they deserved and Israel didn't get what they deserved, but that's another story. But, you know... This is the same God that we can know today too. And like Judah, like Judah, we've always got a choice when it comes to how we approach impossible situations. Friends, I know I've been in a few seemingly impossible situations over the journey. And often we actually mightn't feel like we have much agency, much choice in the matter. We might feel completely powerless. We might feel like everything's just gone pear-shaped, everything's out of control. But we see here that we actually do have a choice. We do, we can make a choice. When we face impossible situations as people of faith, we can choose, with Holy Spirit's help, who knows often that's the key, can't do it in our own strength, but we can choose with Holy Spirit's help 
to actually trust our impossible situations to our mighty God. And we can choose to pray and invite him in to move. Yeah? That's what we can, and that's what God longs that we would do, that we would be like Hezekiah in that sense, that we would recognize the the foolishness of trying to handle things ourselves and work out answers to complicated problems and family relationships and health challenges and all these sort of things, and instead just take him up on his offer. I'm here, guys. Turn to me. Repent and come back once again. That's what God longs that we would do with our impossible situations. And friends, I believe that there are many people here today who are facing impossible situations. And these people are facing impossible situations. And maybe, maybe some of us, maybe some of us, I know it's been true for me many times over the journey, maybe for some of us, we've been trying to get our own deliverance. We've been working hard and we've been strategizing and we've been going to everyone but God to find the answers and we realize that, man, that just doesn't work. It doesn't work. I'm looking for what I need in all the wrong places. Well, I believe that you know, through the week as, as I was prepping for this, God, God laid a word on my heart and I believe that this is what God would want to say to some of us here today. He said, I'm the Lord of hosts and I'm with you. Come to me, trust in me, ask me and wait and see what I can do. I'm the Lord of hosts and I'm with you. Come to me, trust in me, ask me and watch and see what I can do. Friends, if that word is for you today, why don't you come forward and actually receive some prayer for that to be true in your life, for God to come and move in your impossible situation, for God to come and do something out of the ordinary to break out of this situation that you're in and to give you the beautiful relief that comes from letting go of burdens, giving them to God and watching him do what only he is actually meant to do. We're not designed to carry these things, but he's got mighty big shoulders and he's happy to carry them for us. So maybe we were going to have a little ministry song here, but our music team is sick. So maybe we can have um, just some background music and in a moment, if you'd like to come forward for some prayer. Um, I'd love to pray with you as you hand these things over to God and surrender before him afresh today. So let's just, let's just bow our heads for a moment and be in an attitude of prayer as we wait on Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit.
God, we just pray that you would move in our hearts now. If this word that you laid on my heart during the week is for people here today or or watching with us online, Lord, pray that we would not miss this opportunity. We would not miss this opportunity to turn to you afresh and to release our impossible situations to you, allowing you to carry them and allowing you to do what you alone can do and we definitely cannot do. And that's bring breakthrough. That's bring hope. That's shed light into dark places. So God, we just pray right now by your Spirit that you would prompt us to respond. If that is in person to come forward and receive prayer, or if that's at home, just to respond by by getting down on our knees or or just even putting our hands out as a sign of surrender and praying and inviting you to have your way in our hearts and with these impossible situations.